Some, some people will lean towards the trusting, like your wife, and some people will, will lean towards the obeying. And we need to marry the two. Hey everyone, welcome to What in the World. My name is Jake Lee and I'm your host of this podcast. And uh, in this podcast, we talk about what God is doing both here in the Milwaukee area and all around the globe. And last episode, I uh, got to hear a conversation that Shannon had with Paco, um, talking about a little bit about Elmbrook and Espanol, but mainly about um, his father and what it means to die well. And so if you haven't listened to that podcast, I would strongly encourage you to go back. For me, that was a very powerful podcast to listen to, that conversation. And I feel privileged to be just, just a small part of helping get that out there. Um, but today, we are going to be listening to part one of three of an interview I had with Stuart Briscoe. And I finally have had the time to um, get it together so we can get this content out to you. Um, and in this specific part of our conversation, which is going to cover Elmbrook's missional engagement with the globe is what I really wanted to focus on. Like, how did we have this back and forth kind of like interaction with the global body of Christ, which is something I am very passionate about. And I'm trying to spend time uh, myself personally uh, looking into and diving into this stuff. But in this podcast, we're really lasering in on the start of Elmbrook's missional flame being fanned. And just seeing it really start to grow because mission has always been a part of Elmbrook from the very foundation when we had just a few families praying um, that started the original church. But then we really saw this foundational part of it begin to grow, to be on mission with God. And so I'm excited for us to dive into that conversation. But before we do that, uh, let's take a minute to listen to Stuart's cultural blunder. Uh, cultural blunders, of course, uh, are very easy to fall into when we start when we start operating in a, in a foreign culture or a culture that's foreign to, foreign to us. And in the very early days uh, of my international experience, it was mainly in Europe. I, I lived I lived mm-hmm. in England at the time. Uh, but it was mainly in Europe and almost exclusively in the very early days with German-speaking young young people. And this was at the end of the Second World War. And uh, I, I didn't know any German. I'd had six years of Latin and six years of French. That doesn't help with the German. It didn't help with the German, didn't really help with the, with the French or the Latin <laughs> either. <laughs> but the... Uh, but uh, I, I decided if, as much as I got the opportunity, I, I, would, I would learn German. I never did get the chance to study it. And so what German I acquired over the years was purely conversation with people. And also listening to English speakers being translated into German simultaneously. Okay, yeah. And that was that was a good way of, of, of learning. But it was it was mainly in, in biblical language as well, so it didn't always happen. It didn't always happen. Uh, it didn't always help, rather, in in the um, in the normal conversation. So I, I do have some anecdotes uh, about uh, faux pas. Well, that's French. Yes. But, uh, but faux pas in the in the German language, and I 
I remember one time being in a home, a very stately home in Germany, very formal, and I'd been invited there by the teenagers whom I'd met at the youth center where I worked in England. Mm -hmm. We had been brought hundreds of Germans over every year, and I got to know all these teenagers, ministered to them, and then they would ask me, you know, come over to Germany and visit us and we'll introduce you to our friends. And so that's, that was a lot of what I was doing. And uh, I was staying in this, this, this home and, uh, and the teenagers knew some English, but the parents did not know any English at, at all. They, they'd grown up uh, during, during the war and then afterwards in the Russian zone. So, yeah. so they were more familiar with Russian than than English, and uh, so well, we were sitting down with a very formal meal one time, and uh, they, they were getting me to speak what German I I, I could, and the teenagers were lo- were loving this thing, and and, and uh, the parents were looking decidedly aghast most of the time. <laughs> And anyway, and uh, uh, as we were as we were proceeding with the meal, the, the father, a very a very austere German gentleman, uh, kept saying "noch mehr, noch noch mehr," mm-hmm. and they, they was asking me, "Would you like more? Would you would you like more tea? Noch mehr?" And uh, and uh, I, I I I really didn't know how much I should be eating and all this. Yeah, what's this, appropriate? Yeah, all this sort of thing. And uh, so uh, I said, nein, danke, vielen Dank, and many thanks, no, but no, no thank you. He kept pressing me, and so in the end, it, it, I said, noch, uh, nein, 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 danke, ich habe sehr gut gefressen. And there was a horrified silence, and then the two teenagers started howling with laughter, and the old people looked very askance at me. The, uh, the, the, the German for eating is Essen. Mm-hmm. The past participle of Essen is gegessen. But I had said gefressen. And uh, Essen is to eat. Fressen is to stuff yourself like a pig. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that that was not a good start. Another time, I was talking to a young young lady who I got to know quite well. She she was very proficient in English as as well as her mother tongue. She was actually a medical student, and then she was she was engaging me in conversation, and she would not answer me if I spoke in English. She she was insisting that I struggled my way through with with German. Mm-hmm. But I could see she was having trouble controlling her giggles while this was going on. And she never did tell me, but I made inquiries afterwards. And I was having trouble with the German word hinter, H-I-N-T-E-R, hinter, mm-hmm. which, uh, which, means, which means behind. But I discovered after some time what had been occasioning the, the giggles was that I was discussing not something behind her. Oh, no. I was discussing her behind. 
<laughs> yes, I can see how that one would be a problem. But anyway, that's enough of that. <laughs> Stuart, thank you so much for just sharing um, your own experience with cultural blunders. The reason <laughs> on the podcast that I like to bring these out in the beginning is because if, in my opinion, if we're actually engaging in what, what God is doing, if we are crossing cultures and interacting with people who are different than us, we are going to make mistakes. Well, and sure. I feel like we should normalize that. And it's great to hear you also struggling with German, um, speaking like a King James Bible is what it sounds like <laughs> based on what most of your input was. And then commenting on women's behinds accidentally. So <laughs> thank you so much, Stuart. Um, so yeah, uh, I am really excited today that we get to have Stuart Briscoe on this uh, podcast. Um, it's a privilege um, to have you in and just get to hear about a little bit more of your story, how God has used you to kind of shape and direct a lot of Elmbrook's missional past and where we're going right now. There's a lot of things that have been put into the DNA of Elmbrook Church that we still to this day are incredibly passionate about. And yeah, I'm excited to dive into that. So what I wanted to start the conversation is kind of this topic of global theology. And so for me, this is something I'm very passionate about, this idea of wanting to hear from different voices around the globe, uh, which I believe helps expand our understanding of God and the gospel and gives us a more robust and deeper theology, especially when we're engaging people from different cultures because they view things in scripture and see things that I don't see as a Westerner. What are some of the most pivotal things you've seen Elmbrook engaging in during your time in regards to global theology, uh, well, one of, one of the pivotal things was almost as soon as I arrived here as as pastor, uh, Elbrook was was a relatively small church or a medium sized church uh, in in those days. And one of the first things I did was ask about their, their giving to missions, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, w- without defining that term specifically, and uh, I, I was su- I was surprised uh, to to see that it, it was well for, from from my perspective it was it was a pretty low figure. Mm-hmm. I think it was twenty five thousand dollars a year, and so somebody has said you look you look disappointed with that answer. So I said, "Well, I shouldn't let my feelings betray me, but uh, but yes, I'm I'm surprised, given mm-hmm. the given the size of the church. There are three or four hundred people here, and so they said, what should we do?' So I said, "Well, double it,' <laughs> and uh, so they did, and they got it without any problems. So they and they, they were excited about that." And, uh, so they said, "What should we do now?" I said, "Put another twenty-five on." And so that's what we did. So when it came, it was 25. Then next year it was 50. Then 75. Then 100. Then 125,000. So this was the first sign of of uh, a burgeoning interest in mission. They did. They did have uh, one or two missionary families. That I think there were two, specifically. And uh, they, they had very close attachment to those and really cared for them and, and supported them. But but that was it. At the end of the fifth year, I think it was, when, when the giving went to 125,000, I introduced them to something they'd never heard of called Faith Promise. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the idea of faith promise which I explained to them was this that we we say we say to certain people in our congregation if if you will leave what you're doing and go overseas with the message of the gospel we will send you and we will support you and I said that that's an enormous step for for those people to do that leave, leave their home and their, their their home culture and their families etc and go off to the uttermost parts of the earth but I said, why should they be the only ones who make that kind of sacrifice? The rest of us just put a few bucks on the plate occasionally mm-hmm. or a, a sizable amount in, in, at the end of the year, whatever we do. But it, it, there's, there's, not, there's not a lot of sacrifice in it. Mm-hmm. So I said, this is what I suggest we, we, we do, that we don't just ask people to make a promise and to step out in faith. But we ask all the congregation to do that as well. Hmm. Promise to the Lord, the, the Lord enable me above and beyond what I would normally give to, for the local operation. Uh, I, I promise, if, as the Lord provides, to give this, to devote this to, to missions. And I said, and, and what will happen then is we in the congregation will make a promise to the missions committee and the make me uh, in faith, and the missions committee on the basis of that act of faith will make a promise. So then, we, this is what will happen: the congregant, a congregant, will, by the matter of, uh, as an act of faith, will make a promise. The the missions committee will hear that, and they will st- take a step of faith based on that promise, and they will make a commitment to the missionary. The missionary, on the basis of that promise, will take a step of faith and will head, head on out. And we've got a whole church taking steps of faith and making mm. promises. It took a while for, the, for people to get hold of the idea, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it didn't take long for, for them to get caught up in the excitement of, as, a, as, a, as a church uh, of doing this. So we went from 25, 50, 75, 100, 125, faith promise, 250. Mm. And then after 250, 500. And we were off and running at that point. And then we were in a, 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 a wonderful position. We, we, we had money for missionaries, but we didn't have any missionaries beyond the two who were already mm-hmm. being, being supported. So in those days, I would often, between Sundays, go and preach in churches around America, sometimes overseas. And many of those places uh, were missions conferences, and there were missionaries there. I was the most popular visiting preacher in (laughs) missions conferences in America, because I would make an announcement, if any of you young people are trying to get support, come and talk to me, I think I can help you. And many of the uh, first missionaries we took on here at Elmbrook had nothing to do with Elmbrook. Mm-hmm. There were people I'd met around the place, uh, around the country, who needed support. I got, I got to know them, and uh, this came from Elmbrook giving. So th- those were two things that were formative in the missions uh, thing. Uh, actually, there are people right now coming to retirement mm-hmm. in, in missions, they were actually young kids coming out of Bible college looking for support when I met them. 
and we've been with them all the way through their their careers. And a number of those people are in the highest levels of leadership of those mission agencies now. How in the world? In this section, we try to describe the way in which we seek to accomplish God's mission and God's purposes through Elmbrook Church. How do we approach it? How are we strategic? And for this first how in the world, I want to describe the difference between modality and sodality. And it's fine if you've never heard these words before, but what they describe is really the two functions, I would say, of the body of Christ. One, the modality functions as maybe the denomination or local congregation. So your local church, Elmbrook Church in this instance, and then sodality, which is the missionary unit, the sending band of people going out to do missionary work, which in our case would be our mission agencies that we partner with and our local and global partners. All of these entities, these organizations function as a sodality, as an arm extension of the church that does operate with a lot of autonomy and independence, but still is in some way connected to the modality, the local church, Elmbrook. And so Elmbrook has done this uh, for most of its history. And we have seen the importance of it because in the very beginning, we didn't adopt this model. We tried to be everything ourselves. And that resulted in a story I'll go into more depth into another time, but basically our first field worker were so lacking in money that the family had to sell their furniture in order to buy formula to feed their baby because Elmbrook was doing a bad job in caring for them. Moving forward, we've found ways to partner more healthily with a multitude of organizations and really lean on their strengths and their expertise, which really do a good job in caring for our field workers and helping them in their day-to-day operations, which Elmbrook Church is honestly not equipped to tell them what to do in their day-to-day operations. But we have a very vital and important place to play in how we seek to care for them with prayer and support and guidance when it's appropriate. And this dual approach of sodality, Elmbrook Church and modality, our local and global partners and the agencies our field workers work through, we've developed a very healthy model which gives multiple levels of accountability and support for those that are being sent out from Elmbrook Church. This has been How in the World. It's really cool to hear you talk about this because obviously this was a huge pivotal moment. We're talking the 1960s right now, correct? 1970. 1970. So basically when this started kicking off, um, a lot of it, what I like is just the simple idea of being obedient, of taking simple steps of faith, which is something that is very core um, to following Christ and just a basic, basic form of discipleship but one that you got the church to start to take seriously of just trusting one step at a time, something you might give, then making a commitment as a church to in obedience, make a promise. And then uh, to, as a person choosing to go overseas as a missionary to take that step and just continually take these steps forward. And at that point you see the church's giving toward mission just absolutely explode as kind of a, just this huge ramp up graph And it is cool because you mentioned the fact how we were having some people who are on the age of retirement right now from finishing up their careers as serving as missionaries, or we call them field workers now overseas. 
it's really cool to know that some of them were these young Bible students who are coming out and we found, but then the other ones that we're running into, I've mentioned on this podcast before, kind of when the hippie movement got folded into Elmbrook, a lot of those in leadership now are also from that specific movement who launched a bunch of missionaries at the time. And so it's really cool to see the fruit and the impact um, from that time of just simply being obedient to what you were sensing God was leading the church to. Sure. If I can add one thing to that, Jake, the you know the old hymn. I don't. I don't suppose we ever sing it now. Used to say, "Trust and obey," for yes. there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The this, the Christian life in every aspect operates mm. on twin tracks. One is obedience, and the other is dependence. O- obedience. Well, first one is dependency on what God has promised to do. And dependence is depending on him to mm-hmm. do it. So, so, so it's, it's trusting God to do what he promised to do. And then obedience is now in the light of that, doing what he told us to do. And it doesn't work without both of these, both of these things being there. And the faith promise gave you the opportunity to do that. It was it was an act of faith of dependence on God, enabling me to give beyond mm-hmm. what I was planning to do, or even thought I could do. And 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 then it's it's also predicated on that dependence and metastasizes, if you like, into mm-hmm. obedience. And and so people were learning that as as well. Many many of us have got a, a Christian life that really doesn't require an awful lot of dependence. Yes. We, 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 we can pretty much handle it. Mm-hmm. But, but we, we need to get off comfort edge, um, off comfort zone, out, out, out on the edges. And these were steps that people were taking for the first time in their lives. Uh, in in that direction. Anyway, we're laboring the point. No, I mean, I think it's something that, um, something that's incredibly important, obviously to the core of following Jesus, of the Christian life, but you've seen it in, it, you've seen it laid out with this church and how it has grown in points of rapid growth. I've seen it in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the first time that we gave money as a young couple, which was like, I don't know, 21 or something. And, we were at a mission conference and they were asking us to give. And my wife was like, yeah, let's give $50. And I was like freaking out because I was like, I can't do that. We, we don't have the money. We can't do that. And in retrospect now, it's funny because it's like, it's $50. Like, it's fine. Get over it. But at the time, for me, that was a huge step of obedience to just write that check and give that money up. And throughout my life, which I think many Christians would attest to this, it's those decisions you make of stepping out of the comfort zone, mm-hmm. of realizing you're trusting in something other than your own. There's the trust, plans. you see. Yeah. There's the trust as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the trust and the obedience. Yeah. So trust and obey. Keep, keep that ringing in your ears all the time. Some some people will lean towards the trusting, like your wife. Mm-hmm. And some people will will lean towards the obeying, and we need to marry the two. And that that that's why a husband and, and a wife need to be together on these things. Mm-hmm. It does it doesn't uh, it doesn't split down conveniently on gender lines like that. Sometimes it's the reverse. Yes, 
but often you'll, you'll find we help each other by a natural proclivity in one direction being married to an, another natural proclivity in a different direction. I like that a lot. Also, I do like that hymn. I actually am aware of it, even of my age as a millennial. Um, but that's because my wife's grandparents also attended Elmbrook for many, many years. And so they really like that hymn. So I hope it was obvious that in this conversation, uh, Stuart and I were having a fun time. It was really good to just sit in a room with him and just uh, talk about this stuff. I mean, for me, it's something I'm passionate about. And I know Stuart has had this passion for much longer than me. And it's very encouraging and humbling to be in the same room and just to talk about these things and hear about the legacy that I have uh, stepped into and honestly be part of what God has done through Elmbrook Church, that I get to play a small part, whatever that's going to look like moving forward. Some things that I wanted to point out uh, as takeaways after we've listened to this conversation is one, are you committed to mission? Um, Are you giving? It was an interesting challenge to have Stuart just go to the elders and be like, yeah, that's not very much. I mean, we each have to give out of our own means what we have. And and God knows our heart. And that's the point of it, too. And Stuart was looking at Elmbrook and the size. And I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know how much he knew the congregation had, but he knew that the church should be giving more. And the church needs to be invested in the mission of God, not Elmbrook's mission, but God's mission. And he pushed them. He pushed them to trust God and to be obedient. And I love that we got to sit on that at the end of this podcast or this conversation was trust and obey. It's just a such a simple way to live life, but one that has such a ripple effect, one that allows for such depth and one that I am excited to continue to practice, to continue to improve on throughout my life, continuing to trust God and obey him in everything I do. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And next time, in the next conversation with Stuart, the next part of it, we are going to be looking a little bit more globally. This time we were talking about what originally fanned the flames. And next time we're going to start to shift more into a global scale. What did that look like with Elmbrook's global engagement? So I look forward to talking to you next time. This is Ben. What in the world?